Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. I hope all who are listening now had a meaningful Rosh Hashanah and that your Aserity made Tshuva are reflective and meaningful as well as we lead into Yom Kippur. Um, as I've been announcing on our show the last couple of weeks, I'll keep on pushing it. Um, we have our biggest event of the year, our really only in-person event of the year coming up on Sunday, November 5th, the Orthodox Jewish All-Star Awards. Today is actually the last day to get your early bird tickets. Um, and if you've heard me mention it before, the All-Stars are our chance to highlight Orthodox Jews who are doing exceptional things in the professional world. These people generally stay um, below uh, the radar. Um, they keep quiet with their success, by and large. Um, and unfortunately, it's the Chil Hashem that often makes the headlines, and it's the negative stories that people often associate with our community. And so the Orthodox Jewish All-Stars is our attempt to change the association as to what um, an Orthodox Jew means. Um, and Saying Orthodox Jewish All-Star is a perfect segue to uh, a very special guest that I'm honored and humbled to have on our show today. Um, this uh, guest needs no introduction, but I will give you a brief bio. Um, anyway, uh, he is Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Um, he's an international religious leader, philosopher, award-winning author, and respected moral voice. He was awarded the 2016 Templeton Prize in recognition of his exceptional contributions to affirming life's spiritual dimension. Um, he is a frequent and sought-after contributor to radio, television, press in both Britain and around the world. Since he stepped down as the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregation of the Commonwealth, um, a position he served in for 22 years, he's held a number of positions at academic institutions, including Yeshiva University, King's College, London. He currently serves as the Ingbert and Ironrenner Global Distinguished Professor at New York University. He's been awarded 17 honorary doctorates, including a Doctor of Divinity, conferred to mark his tenure in office as Chief Rabbi by then the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and he's the author of over 30 books. Rabbi Sachs, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Alison. So, um, um, you know, with the time... Wish everyone, wish you and all your listeners a summit of uh, a year of good things, of health, happiness, blessing, and of course, above all, peace. Shabbat shalom to all of you. Amen. Same to you and to yours. Um, we don't have a very long time, and so, you know, a lot of times when I bring on guests, I, you know, will ask about their background or their history. For you, I want to really talk a little talkless about sort of some of the most pressing issues, I think, on my mind, I think, facing the Jewish people today. Um, you're, you know, such a leader and visionary in these topics, and so I would love to just chat about some of these kind of bigger issues. Um what would you say um, would be good advice or a good answer for the person wondering how to balance faith with rational thinking, um, faith with um, modern mores? Um, you know, people call faith a religion, the opiate of the masses. What What is our best response to people that are struggling to well, find faith? Well, it was a pretty Jewish guy who said that. I mean, Karl Marx, of course. Uh, was the grandson of a rabbi and the great-grandson of a rabbi. So, you know, um, you, of course, um, it is completely and absolutely uh, untrue about Judaism. Judaism is not a form of opium. It doesn't tranquilize you to the sufferings and injustices of the world. Otherwise, Jews would never have produced a Karl Marx. So um, Judaism is a religion not of acceptance, but of protest. It doesn't accept the world as it is, unlike virtually every other religion known to me. 
And that is why you will find Jews disproportionately engaged in changing the world as lawyers fighting injustice or as teachers fighting ignorance or as doctors fighting disease or as economists fighting poverty or as therapists fighting depression and despair. So Karl Marx's idea that religion is the opiate of the masses simply does not apply to Judaism. But you ask two different and separate questions, so let's take them one by one, Judaism and rational thinking. In Judaism, we celebrate rational thinking. Um, there were two cultures in antiquity that together formed what we know as Western rationality. One of those was uh, the tradition of ancient Greece, of Athens, of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And the other one, rather earlier than that, was the monotheism of Judaism, of Moses and the prophets. Both of those cultures did what we call nowadays demythologization. They cured human beings of myth, of the idea that the world is governed by unpredictable and capricious forces, and we've got to dance between the raindrops and propitiate the gods who are, you know, um, uh, trying to destroy us because we make too much noise. So Judaism was, was actually the, 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 the prime mover of Western rationality. And it wasn't a Jew who said this. It was the great 19th century German sociologist, Max Weber, who pointed to Genesis chapter 1 which is completely free of myth, and said this was the start of Western rationality. Now, a Jew would say this, wouldn't he, Alison? I mean, especially a rabbi. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if I can just quote to you a couple of other voices. Is that okay? Yes, please. Uh, one of them, a man I really admired, he was, he was really famous for being the voice of reason in Britain. He was editor of the London Times and chairman of the governors of the BBC. His name was William Rees-Mogg, right? And he was a Catholic. And this is what he wrote. One of the gifts of Jewish culture to Christianity is that it has taught Christians to think like Jews. And then he adds, any modern man who has not learned to think as though he were a Jew can hardly be said to have learned to think at all. Mm. That, that's pretty strong, right? Yeah. And now so, I want to quote the real clincher for me, and mm -hmm. that is Nietzsche. Nietzsche was undoubtedly the most brilliant philosopher of recent times, and he was absolutely opposed to Judaism. Right? Mm-hmm. However, he thought Jews and Judaism were the most rational form of thinking anywhere. And I want to quote to you what he wrote, and this is Nietzsche. He wrote this, Consider Jewish scholars in this light. All of them have a high regard for logic, that is, for compelling agreement by force of reasons. They know that with that they're bound to win even when they encounter race and class prejudices. Mm. 
right? In other words, Jews found Germans very prejudiced against them. And Nietzsche is writing here in the 1870s. And he's saying the only way they could even survive was to develop to the nth degree the power of reason, because nobody can turn down and nobody can ignore the power of reason. And then he goes on to say this. Incidentally, Europe owes the Jews no small thanks for making people think more logically and for establishing cleanlier intellectual habits. Wherever Jews have won influence, they have taught men to make finer distinctions, more rigorous inferences, and to write in a more luminous and cleanly fashion. Their task was ever to bring a people to listen to reason. Now, that is written by one of the biggest opponents of Judaism there ever was. But he did not criticize it for irrationality. Quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, but there's still a certain amount, even in the rational camp of more of the Maimonidean camp, there's still a certain amount of miracles or uh, sort of inexplicable things that uh, a believing Jew or an observant Jew must embrace. That's sort of part of... Is it a dogma? Is it something that we grow to or work towards? What about for the person that, you know, wants to believe but struggles to believe in the things that he can't see or prove or touch? Yeah, that is because we're living in a culture more secular than any that has existed in the last 2,000 years. You have to go back to first century Rome or pre-Christian Greece to find a culture as secular as the one we're living in now. And of course, this secular culture um, has an overestimate of the power of reason. And it was actually Jews who pointed this out. Freud taught us how irrational many of our drives and fears are. Daniel Kahneman, the great economist, the great Israeli Jewish economist, won the Nobel Prize for Economics, for showing, he calls it behavioral economics in his famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that even when it comes to economic decisions, which we assume are the most rational of all the decisions we make, actually human beings are irrational indeed. So anyone who thinks that the only way to proceed in this life is through logic and rationality is going to fail to understand 50% at least of human behavior. Judaism has to deal with things that lie beyond the scope of reason, right? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and uh, that is what makes it, in my view, a much more human, humane, and humanizing force than strict logic. You know, strict logic brought the French Revolution, which brought the reign of terror, which brought the hundreds of thousands of people dying by, by repression, including some of the founders of the revolution itself. We are more than simply rational animals. And we've had this dogma that human beings are rational and rationality is all there is. There's a wonderful neuroscientist who I'm pretty sure is not Jewish called Antonio Damasio, who as a neuroscientist wrote a very important book called Descartes' Error, which I recommend to all your listeners, who showed that if people act purely rationally, they will never, ever be able to make a decision. So, so in our, I guess, innately, we are not purely rational beings, and so that it, it shouldn't, 
it shouldn't be too much of a stretch as human beings to have to go beyond uh, the, the reason and the rationale that to sort of believe in something that we can touch um, or is beyond. Yeah, look, the, um, the, the biggest, I did, does the name Richard Dawkins come strike recognition with you? Yes. Richard Dawkins probably today's, today is the world's most famous atheist, right? Yeah. And Richard Dawkins is a friend of mine. I, I have a high regard for him. We've done many conversations on radio and television. And I once asked him, Richard, are you an optimist? Mm. He said, of course, I'm an optimist, obviously. I said, Richard, where's the evidence? Mm. You cannot examine history or nature and tell me that on rational basis alone I am an optimist because every reason you give for being an optimist, somebody could give for being a pessimist. Hmm. So, I mean, a basic human attitude like optimism is not rationally defensible. We owe to a wonderful Scotsman in the 17th century, called uh, 18th century, called David Hume, who actually demonstrated, and he really, you know, he demonstrated that you cannot prove rationally the basis of science. In other words, supposing you have observed the sunrise a million times, you cannot infer with absolute certainty that it's going to rise on the million and one time. It's called the problem of induction. In other words, the whole of science rests on a leap of faith. And actually, it was Einstein who gave a very religious expression to that leap of faith on which science depends. He put it in one simple sentence. He said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. So uh, I think we have absolutely exaggerated belief in rationality that it can answer every question in human existence. Actually, rationality only answers a few important questions in human existence, and it can't answer the most important. Like, why does music matter? Why does a sense of humor matter? Why do we bother to pursue justice? Why is it better to be a, a good person than an entirely selfish one? What is wrong with narcissism? All of those fundamental questions you cannot prove rationally. Mm. And I just think um, we, we, people look at, at rationality with the same kind of superstition that very primitive people think about religious faith. It's their alternative religion. But frankly, Judaism is more subtle and complex than that because humanity is more subtle and complex than that. Okay, so you've made the argument for not living a totally rational life. Nobody's doing it. But let's say we get into the Torah and we find, you know, examples of slavery or, you know, treatment of women or, you know, different things like that that fly in the face with our modern values or mores. Um, okay. Something that I... Yeah. Now, that's uh, another question, and it's yeah. an important one. How do we yeah. balance faith with modern values? First of all, the Torah is the first document ever to criticize the institution of slavery. Judaism was born when God entered history to liberate 
slaves. Mm-hmm. No God had ever been on the side of slaves before. No God had ever liberated slaves before. So Judaism is the first step in the long road to abolishing slavery. And it began the abolition in two ways. Number one, every seventh year, slaves were to go free, and every jubilee year. But two, and much more importantly, one day in seven on Shabbat, not only were you not allowed to work, you weren't allowed to get your slaves to work for you. In other words, one day in seven, every slave tasted freedom. Now, a thousand years after Moses came Plato and Aristotle. And both Plato and Aristotle, in slightly different ways, believed there are some people born to be slaves. The Greeks never thought of abolishing slavery, but Jews did a thousand years beforehand. So Jews began the fight against slavery, which, of course, the United States of America didn't manage to achieve until 1865, and not without a civil war. And don't forget, the man who led the campaign against slavery, William Wilberforce, was a committed Christian who did so on the basis of the Hebrew Bible. So, so is that um, the best answer you know, that we can I, I, give to, to say that it, the Torah is, is a process, that it's, it was given in a world that was far different the Torah than ours? Of and it was a process because no cultures change suddenly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's such a thing as a national culture, there's such a thing as a corporate culture. Tell me, Alison, have you ever tried changing a corporate culture? No, not personally. In a company with a thousand employees. It's tough. It takes yeah. time. And when it comes to humanity as a whole, it's even tougher, and it takes an even longer time. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the Torah is radical in one respect as far as women is are concerned. Women in Judaism were excluded from the priesthood. And that's a problem, no question. Uh, and there's a reason for it, but it doesn't chime easily with modern ears. Mm -hmm. But women were prophets, just as men were prophets. Deborah was a prophet. Um, The the matriarchs were prophetesses. Huldah was a prophet. We we had prophetesses who were, uh, and their word was as authoritative as the words of Isaiah or Jeremiah. And you have strong women in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Look at the story of Deborah. Barak, head of Israel's army, 3,000 years ago, had to go to Deborah and say, Deborah, you know, give me encouragement, because if you go, then I'll go. But if you don't go, then I can't go. There's a, one of Israel's leading soldier turning to a woman and saying, I can't do, without, do this without you. And had it not been for Miriam, there wouldn't be a Moses. There wouldn't be a Jewish people. So it was the, we were ahead of our time in terms of the treatment of women, but again, we have to look back at where society was and kind of recognize the discrepancy with where we are today. Yeah. You know, I don't go back 3,000 years into the past and ask, why didn't the Egyptians use autonomous cars? I mean... <laughs> The cutting edge of their technology was the horse-drawn chariot. 
it is, um, you know, anachronism to apply the standards of the present to uh, a text that's 3,300 3, years old. And that is why in Judaism we believe that God empowered us to develop something called the Torah Shabbat, the oral Torah, which is an ongoing and, and endless process since the Torah was given of interpreting the Word of God for all time so that it became the Word of God for this time. And uh, the, the changes in the role of women in Jewish life in the past century have been unprecedented in all of Jewish history. You know, so you what's have uh, seminar, seminaries for women. Women never learned Torah in advanced ways before, you know, 100 years ago in Sarah Shanira. Um, you have leading women Torah teachers today. Um, my, my beloved uh, colleague and friend of Eva Zornberg is one of the outstanding ones, as is another colleague and... and, and, and um, pupil of mine one, one time, uh, Erica Brown, who does such a good job in the States. So I think women are, the voice of women is finally being heard, as it has not been for a very long time. All right, I got a couple more questions for you, and they're also big, so I'm going to try to now move into, uh, I could go deeper into this one, but I want to try to you know, uh, get into a couple other topics. Um, this is all very fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. What would you say... Um, I have my opinion. What would you say is the biggest challenge or the biggest challenges facing facing the Jewish people today? Look, they're obvious. Problems facing the Jewish people. Number one, return of anti-Semitism to Europe. And who knows, after Charlottesville, maybe we've seen it return to the United States. Number two, the delegitimation of Israel, BDS. Number three, the threats facing Israel, Iran, and doing so through proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah. And then you have the internal rifts within Jewry, which have been going on for the last 200 years. Then you have the internal rifts within Israeli society, uh, about which the most eloquent spokesman has been uh, the president of the State of Israel, Reuven Rivlin, who talks about an Israel of four minorities, none of whom have anything in common with the others. The uh, secular public, the religious national public, the Haredi public, and the Palestinians. So those are pretty big problems. However, as far as I'm concerned, the single biggest problem is the failure of Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw the extent of that uh, with the 2013 Pew report, which showed that outside orthodoxy, 71% of Jews are marrying out, outside of the faith, and most of those will not bring out their children as Jews. And then two or three weeks ago, we had the 2017 Pew report that showed for Jews under 30, 53% of them declare themselves as of no religion. Now, that, you know, once Jews lose belief in, them, belief in themselves, mm. that's serious. And that, to me, is the biggest problem. So I, you know, when I started Jew in the city, um, that the thing that you speak about the biggest problem of Jews not having the the identity, or I guess how I would have framed it would be um, not really seeing the beauty or the meaning in a, a Jewish lifestyle. That was I was proud to be Jewish, um, but I didn't understand the depth and the spirituality that was available to me, and I really saw observance as a thing that 
would hold me back as uh, without realizing that there's still so much room for self. This was really the the idea of founding Jew in the City to redefine orthodoxy. What I've discovered in 10 years of doing this now, it's terribly upsetting. Um, so many Orthodox Jews seem to not understand um, that there's so much room for self within our laws um, and the the value add and the meaning and the spirituality that our lifestyle could bring. Is that something that you've seen as well or any thoughts on, you know, kind of well, what, look, what we can uh, do about Allison, that? You know, I, I hate to, to do this to you, but if you could uh, encourage your listeners to take a look, for instance, at our little six-minute-long video on why I am a Jew, it's a little whiteboard animation thing. Um, that, you know, that is my answer to the question. You'll find it on YouTube if you look up Rabbi Sachs and why I am a Jew. And in terms of Jewish spirituality, you know, I've just put on YouTube and Facebook 10 four- to five-minute, very short videos on Jewish spirituality. They've got words and music and images, and I've tried to uh, convey what, to me, is the sound and the shape and the beauty of Jewish spirituality. I, I do think we have underachieved in those areas, and that's why I, that's part of my work is to try and redress that. Excellent. We, we would love for our, uh, our listeners to uh, continue learning from you after this. We've got a few minutes left, and I'm sorry if it's too big of a question, but this is the last thing that I wanted to ask you. So if you could give me a three-minute answer of this. Um, it seems like there is sort of continued extremism on both sides, extreme secularism and extremism on the religious side of things. Um, and as a person that considers herself an extreme moderate, you know, and tries to live with nuance, and um, it's... It's very, very frustrating, um, and I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on how how do we make the center stronger and kind of um, offer, in a world of sound bites, how do we offer a more nuanced, moderate well, approach to... you know, you, you get extremism whenever the world gets so complicated that people find it difficult to understand. And that is when people try to simplify and uh, you see that process happening today in all the world religions. And the end result is what uh, Bernard Lewis, that great scholar of Islam, calls, I'm right, you're wrong, go to hell. And that is so un-Jewish as to be almost unbelievable. Whenever extremism has surfaced in Jewish life, the result has been total disaster. Uh, the most famous case, of course, was in the late Second Temple period, when Jews were divided into Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. The Pharisees themselves were divided between the students of Hillel and the students of Shammai. Politically, they were divided between moderates and extremists. The end result was three failed rebellions against, Je against Rome and almost the end of the Jewish people. Extremism is so un-Jewish, it's simply unbearable. Judaism is a subtle, complex, nuanced religion. It does not paint Isaac and Ishmael, or Jacob and Esau, or Joseph and his brothers in black or white colors. It allows different voices. It, it is a conversation even more than it's a set of dogmas. And there is room for many voices in Judaism. Judaism 
is as complex as the human condition. And that's what makes it so magnificent of faith. There's so much subtlety in Judaism. I mean, how did the rabbi sit down and agree to include in Tanakh such subversive works as Kohelet or Eov or Shia Hashirin? I mean, these are extraordinary works. Judaism is one of the most beautifully subtle, nuanced faith the world has ever known. And it is such a shame to see it turned into some two-dimensional plastic replica, as if that is the faith of the prophets and the sages and the mystics of all the ages. That is not Judaism. So what I say to you, Alison, is keep doing what you're doing. And I will try and keep doing what I'm doing. And if there are only two of us, I'm sure we will make friends and we will multiply. In the meanwhile, never, ever be discouraged by the fact that you're in a minority. Jews have always been in a minority. It's a Jewish Thank thing you so to much. be. So keep emphasizing the beauty, the spirituality, and the subtlety of our faith. And you will be bestowing a great blessing on the Jewish people. Thank you so much. And um, Hatzlacha with your continued work. And for our listeners, you can check out Rabbi Sachs at rabbisachs.org. Um, he's got a YouTube channel, plenty of articles, over 30 books. I'm not quite so prolific yet. Um, Rabbi Sachs, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to wish you and your family a happy and healthy New Year. And to you, have a wonderful year. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.